Hey, listen, by the time you hear this, if you're listening to it when it drops, I want to remind you that the submission deadline for issue three of the audio magazine is November 1st. So that is most likely today, depending on when you listen to this. So what does that mean? Themes, heroes, essays must be no more than 2,000 words. Bear in mind, it's an audio essay. So we're always paying attention to how the words roll out of your mouth. Don't think of flowery purple prose. You want things that are easy to say. Email your submissions with heroes in the subject line, the creative nonfiction podcast at gmail.com. I also pay writers too. dig it. Sayward and I talked about this so many times as we worked on this story. It's just amazing to us that this, that Herman Mark's story has not been told before. And she was like, oh yeah, Uncle Herman. Everyone was afraid of Uncle Herman. Yo, this is a creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? It's at Brendan O'Meara on Twitter, at CNF Pod on Twitter, at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. I don't do meta. It's all gross. Social media is disgusting, and I want to burn it all to the ground and unplug my brain from the matrix, but I can't. Head over to BrendanO'Meara.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for my up to 11 newsletter, first of the month, no spam, can't beat it. And magazine.adivist.com is where you'll find that blockbuster journalism that my best friends over at the Atavist are doing. We need to pay for stuff, man. I can't think of a better magazine subscription for the value you get than Atavist. And get this, I don't get any kickback, so you know I mean business, CNFers. And what does this all mean? It is the Atavistian time of the month, that bonus podcast that's going to hit your feed when you're like, come on, man, just stop it. Will you stop it already? But no, I won't. Tony Perrote is this month's Atavist showcase. Tony is an international man of mystery. He's Australian born with a French surname and the author of six books, his latest being Cuba Libre, which segues nicely into this piece for the Atavist about Herman Marx. The Butcher, El Carnicero, a Midwest misfit who became the chief executioner for Fidel Castro and Che Guevara during the Cuban Revolution. How do people stumble across these stories, man? I have no idea. There is so much out there. If you don't have any story ideas, you're not looking hard enough. Fact is, there there's just, go under that rock. There's a rock over there. There's something in there, man, under that rock. Maybe in the rock, too, if you're one of those geology nerds. No no hate for geologists. It's actually pretty fascinating stuff. But before we get to that, I hope those of you who subscribe and read The Atavist have been enjoying these interviews. And up to this point, I've been more or less tiptoeing around the stories so as not to spoil them. So almost getting at the periphery of them. But going forward, and certainly starting with this one, I'm conducting the interviews on the assumption that you've read the piece and want a deeper dive into the bones. So, spoiler alerts. And if you subscribe to this wherever you get your podcast, and you just put it in your pocket, tuck it right back there, away from, maybe away from your pocket protector, uh, or next to, or in your pocket protector, so it doesn't leak CNF and goodness on that new shirt of yours. Or that blouse. Do blouses even have breast pockets? I don't know. So yes, going forward, I won't be shy about revealing telling details in the interview. You'd never listen to DVD commentary before you watch the feature film, right? Unless you're some weirdo. But consider these Atavistian podcasts, the DVD commentary. Ew, who watches DVDs anymore? Shut up. Not the point. So you can glean that extra little bit of juice from the incredible piece you just read, okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to really make that a concerted effort. If you like what we're doing here at CNF Pod HQ and you want to put your money where your ears are, ew, weird, head over to patreon.com slash CNF Pod. Those dollar bills help subsidize the hosting, the transcripts, and I pay writers who are selected for the audio magazine. There's a few tiers there. Do a little window shopping. See what strikes your fancy. There's a scene in Robin Hood Men in Tights where Carrie Elvis, is that his name? 
uh, from Princess Bride fame or whatever, uh, he, he throws shade at Kevin Costner where he says, unlike other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. In that vein, unlike other literary journals, I pay writers. I call it that fat burrito money because right now you can maybe take your kid out to a nice afternoon at Chipotle. Just hold the guac. I'm not McSweeney's. All right. So as we start this bonus episode, bonus podcast, we're going to start it with a little jam sesh with Jonah Ogles, the lead editor of this piece. So let's do it. Let's hit it. Let's get into it. Like I, this was a this was quite quite a trip. I mean, what, what did you make of this as you were starting to dive into it? Yeah, well, I mean, I Sayward and I talked about this so many times as we worked on this story. It's just amazing to us that this that Herman Mark's story has not been told before. Um, you know, because it's so unbelievable just from start to finish, basically. And you know, so I was sort of in constant awe that that this one individual had such a, an incredible life um not not necessarily in a in a good way you know he's he's a pretty shady character uh and maybe even just a bad human being but he his mm-hmm. story and the things that he went through and and that happened to him are just a little bit unbelievable you know so this this story is broken up into you know five five parts five chapters with an epilogue. So take me through some of the the structure and how you guys went about you know organizing this piece. Yeah, well, th- this was one of those stories where you could basically let it tell itself. You know, you just sort of get out of the way and and let the facts and the events as they transpired carry the story. Um, you know, so we. We, we did want to open uh, with with sort of some table setting, you know, and, and giving people a glimpse into what the Cuban Revolution was at, at, at that time where, you know, they, Castro wasn't uh, really tight with the Soviets yet. He wasn't. Uh, though they were around, you know, it wasn't exactly clear what sort of government he might be forming other than it was, you know, a little bit more populist uh, than Batista's regime. So we, we talked about many ways of opening the story. We talked about starting with an execution. Um, we, we talked about starting maybe just at the beginning of Herman Marx's life. Uh, but we, we liked this particular scene where there are a lot of writers around because, well, for a few reasons. It, it, first of all, it's sort of just fun uh, for writers and editors to to imagine, you know, all these great writers, George Plimpton and Tennessee Williams, uh, hanging out together. But also, it it sort of, you know, it tells readers that that basically this was a scene. A lot of different people were attracted to Castro and the revolution in Cuba in that moment. And that becomes important later in the story when when Marx, you know, suffers repercussions because of his involvement. And and it's a it was a nice way to tell readers this this guy may not have seen it coming. You know, I certainly Marx deserves, I think, a lot of the the bad stuff that that comes to him, particularly on the on the criminal front. But his involvement in the Cuban revolution was not necessarily like a cut and dried thing the way, you know, someone who's not familiar with it, like me at the start of the piece might immediately assume. And what did Tony specifically bring to this piece and imbue upon the piece with his experience as a historian and journalist? Yeah, well, he just knows it so well, you know, which is really helpful. He has yeah. a book, Cuba Libre, uh, you know, about the Cuban Revolution. So this was clearly, even from the moment he pitched it, it was clear that this this was a story that, uh, you know, may not necessarily have been a book in and of itself, but clearly needed more than just a mention in a book or even a chapter in a book and needed a good number of words in order to fully explore this one person's life and, and the things that, 
that he did and that happened to him. And I always love when I get to talk to you and Sayward about the the puzzle of cracking the code of a piece and sometimes what it takes to, you know, to break it open and put it back together and, you know, and solve the inherent puzzle that is writing a long narrative. So did this piece uh, uh, introduce to you that particular uh, struggle at any point over the course of your editing it and Tony writing it? Well, it was really the beginning that we wrestled with the most. Um, you know, the the rest of it uh, was was really a matter of figuring out sort of the right ratios, which which is not uncommon. And I've, I may have even talked about that in the past with you. You know, Tony, because he knows this so so well, this entire you know Cuba, a country this moment in history, the revolution, he knows so much about all of that. And so, you know, the initial drafts had, you know, much more in-depth conversations about, you know, politics or economics um, and sort of the international relations. And I think what Tony and I spent our, the most time doing in our back and forth was, was just sort of getting those things to the right length so that they informed the reader and, and gave the reader the necessary context to understand what was happening. But mostly, you know, Tony and I were both just focused on letting the plot drive the thing, you know, because it, it's so uh, sort of head scratchingly unbelievable that we wanted to let, we never wanted to stray too far from the plot because it's so propulsive, you know, it, it, I think it's one of the faster pieces and just in terms of how it reads that I've edited recently. And it, and we wanted that, we really wanted that feeling for readers that they were just being driven forward by the events. And you talk about ratios and trying to get the right degree of balance between, you know, the action and scene exposition and so forth. Uh, a lot of people have their way of making sure that they are on balance. And I wonder if you have any tips or tricks or just what you use to assure that you are striking the right balance when you're, you know, editing and synthesizing a piece. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm a big plot guy. You know, I like, I like plot and I like to be, uh, I like a story to be animated by that plot. So, you know, one of the things I will sometimes do when I have a long, a long section that I think should be shorter is I will just, you know, basically write, uh, is like a known exercise for myself, write the section cold, you know, without, without looking at it. I will just read it. And think, okay, now what do I need readers to know? And then I will write, you know, whatever it is, a paragraph, two, three, and then reread it, the old paragraphs and see if I had missed anything important. Um, so for me, that's sort of my guiding principle, which I'm sure like uh, some writers are now listening to this and going like, oh, crap, don't, uh, <laughs> don't work with Jonah. But it's, it's. A nice way to just distill it to its it, what I think of as its purest form, just the necessary parts. And, and I always tell readers, including Tony, like, look, if I missed something important, by all means, let's add it back in. And, and he did that in a, in a handful of cases, and he's right, as writers usually are when they do that. Um, but for me, it's really about just getting it to almost as brief as it can possibly be so that it's not in the way. And the story takes a, a, a really interesting turn from a, from this brutal saga of falling marks, but then as it goes into the, the courts about U.S. civil rights and citizenship. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, because that, that, that really takes a, a really great turn. Yeah, and I, you know, I think this is a story we probably would have assigned even without the legal drama that Marx eventually found himself in, but it... it is what makes it takes it from sort of like a really good story to a great story because he so what what basically happens is while Marx is in Cuba serving as the executioner um, and a and a soldier in the Cuban Revolutionary Army, uh, he is informed that the State Department has revoked his citizenship. Uh, you know they have denationalized him. And 
this comes as a total surprise to him that this is even a thing that can be done because as he says in a in a press conference you know he was he was born an american and it's not something that he plans on giving up um if he has any say in it and so what happens is though though this guy is like you know a really dark character and has been putting you know hundreds of men to death in cuba the aclu ultimately takes up his case because they they want to ensure sort of marks uh you know, humanity aside, they want to ensure that the United States government is not able to punish citizens that they deem problematic or undesirable with revoking citizenship. And they're sort of tackling it on two fronts, both for Americans uh, who would be denationalized and for immigrants who became naturalized citizens, but uh, then the government decides they don't like them. Like Emma Goldman, for example, was, was someone that they uh, they used that tool against. So it, it becomes this this hugely important thing, uh, and Marx is really just sort of the vehicle for the ACLU mounting this legal challenge. Well, it's an incredible story, and I am going to bring in Tony momentarily to talk a, a lot more about it. So, Jonah, thanks so much for hopping on and giving a little inside baseball, and we're going to turn it over to Tony in just a moment. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brendan. I love getting an editor's take on these pieces because they have a slightly more detached view on the thing, a constructive distance, if that makes any sense. The writers are often in the mud of these pieces for months, if not years, and Jonah and Sayward have a clinically passionate approach to everything they do, which is kind of oxymoronic, but it's a great ballast to the writer's more obsessive dive on a subject. So before we get to Tony Perrote, let me say that if you want to get in shape, you hire a personal trainer. Not because you don't know how to exercise or eat right, you know all the fundamentals, but because They'll keep you on pace, accountable, watch your form, etc. And if your essays or a book proposal or manuscript need an extra or a similar amount of attention, I'd love to help. My main areas of expertise are sports books and memoir. So if you or someone you know needs to be needs someone who can see what you can't see anymore, shoot me an email, Brendan at Brendanomero.com, and we'll start a dialogue. Okay? All right, it's Tony time. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Tony Perrote, and that Perrote is spelled P-E-R-R-O-T-T-E-T. And I start off by asking him how on earth he came across Herman Marx, the man at the center of this incredible story. Well, I did this book on uh, the uh, revolution, the Cuban revolution, Cuba Libre. Um, and that was like, uh, came out a couple of years ago. And while I researched it, I was fascinated by um, how, I mean, one of the themes of the book really, is how popular the revolution was uh, in the United States and how romantic it seemed. And everyone thought Che and Fidel were these young, sexy, hot, bearded dudes. And, you know, they, <laughs> and they were hanging around with the, you know, the guerrilla girls were all sexy, with you know, gun-toting and, you know, the whole thing was just, Everyone loved it. And uh, so there are a number of uh, Americans who decided to go down and join up and help um, the you know, fighters guerrillas. Uh, and the, the State Department thought there was like 25 or so who sort of joined at various times. One is kind of, uh, you know, became somewhat famous, William Morgan, he, um, because he became involved in um, defeating a coup uh, against Fidel later in, you know, in, in 1961. Uh, this other guy, it was just a footnote that I saw, in John Lee Anderson's biography of uh, Che Guevara, Che Revolutionary Life, there's this footnote about this dude who um, Herman Marx, uh, who said he was a Korean War veteran, had signed up, and uh, you know, and Che, and then I went back to Che's war diaries, and you, he he talks a bit about um, this, this this character who uh, who's who was very good with weapons and just arrived and had you know no real history, just came out of nowhere. Uh, but then at a certain point, um, he got wounded. 
and he was sent back to uh, the United States. You know, it was bad publicity to have um, Americans dying on the uh, revolutionary side. Mm-hmm. And uh, but and Che privately noting that, um, that they're all a little bit. He didn't quite fit in. This guy Herman Marx was a bit of an oddball. Didn't quite fit in. And people found that uh, he volunteered a little too quickly to do the uh, the executions uh, when there were sort of revolutionary trials there. And uh, just this sort of stray little reference. But I sort of I had always thought it was kind of fascinating and um, had wanted to write something about it, but I never really had time to do the, the research. You know, it was just it was very time it was very time consuming to go digging back uh, during the pandemic. In fact, I was sort of uh, had all this spare time on my hands all of a sudden, uh, which allowed me to do the Freedom of Information Act research and a lot of newspaper research, which was uh, now thankfully online. Uh, and I discovered uh, a lot more about him, and uh, you know that he had, and, and this extraordinary story that he turned up in Havana after after the the victory and uh, was appointed to run the executions in um, in uh, Havana for, for Che and Fidel, which was, of course, the most controversial element of the, um, uh, of the early revolution. It was this hugely popular thing in the United States, but then it was the first sort of discordant uh, note where people were like, hang on, what's going on here? You know, they're, you know, they're shooting all these, uh, you know, the war criminals, they call them. They're like Batista, you know, dictatorship, uh, sinister figures. Uh, no one had much sympathy for them, and yet... Uh, it was starting to get, it seemed to be getting spinning a little bit out of control. So not only that, I did a bit more digging and just like New York Times research, really, just like looking up his name everywhere. And it's like, it turned out he, he was, he'd been running the executions for a while and then he fled away hijacking a, um, a, a boat from, um, from the Isle of Pines uh, with his girlfriend from Manhattan, uh, this model. Um, and it was like this extraordinary story. And then he sneaks into the United States. But then even more, he gets arrested in the United States and he becomes this sort of weird um, civil rights hero because they'd stripped him of his citizenship and the ACLU came to defend him. And it's like, and he's on the front page of the New York Times and no one knew any of this. And it's just literally by but just like you know, reading the newspapers at the time, and it's like he'd become this extremely famous and bizarre figure. So I just found this as like this is one of these extraordinary forgotten lives, and um, so I became sort of obsessed with it. Yeah. So, what direction did Herman take your reporting, and how did you get your head around all the all the all the information that you were able to find on him? Given that there wasn't a whole lot of attention given to him really until, you know, you kind of unearthed the guy's you know, wild and crazy biography. Yeah. It was sort of really digging around. Like, uh, I went on to, on ancestry.com, you know, like finding out where, you know, where his relatives were and whatever. And then finding, uh, one of his nieces, Penlo, who lives in, still lives, he came from Milwaukee. He was sort of this Polish American hard scrabble, miserable sort of childhood. Um, but the family is, you know, still there. And, and this um, this niece, Penlo, who I called, just, you know, found the phone number and called her up. And she was like, oh, yeah, Uncle Herman. Everyone was afraid of <laughs> Uncle Herman. And, like, you know, her parents wouldn't let her go anywhere near it. When he came to visit, he wasn't even allowed on the lawn because he was this sort of very strange figure. And then sort of, you know, and then I was able to dig up his, um, you know, because what happened when he was in Havana, you know, he was sort of like, you know, he told everyone that he was like a, you know, a Korean war veteran and that he'd sort of like was just a gun enthusiast as a, you know, as a kid and doing all this stuff. And then uh, it came out that um, he was actually an ex-con who'd been arrested 32 times in 10 states across the United States, you know, from uh, Hawaii to Maine, you know, it was like, uh, he, he was even arrested once in Australia, where I'm from. It was kind of like when he was in the Merchant Marines. And so he was, it turned out to be this low-level hood, uh, this sort of like, you know, in and out of reform school, just one, you know, screwed up sort of um, incident after the next, usually drunk and disorderly or just some vagrancy or like stealing a car. At one stage, he robs um, some poor woman, and it turns out he gets like you know, 28 cents worth of uh, – uh, mothballs and he's arrested and he goes to, to prison for six months so he's a total <laughs> screw up he's like this he's like um to me and, and yet i mean this, this is a slightly different point but i i you know he's sort of not a terribly sympathetic character in some ways and yet you sort of like see him as sort of a i started to see him like as this film noir sort of figure he's kind of like one of these characters and there's a, you know he's sort of this low life from the 1950s never had a chance always you know trying to work an angle and sort of always screwing up he just reminded me of the character in um, The Postman Always Rings Twice. He's this sort of like drifter, going around, never holds down a job. And then he comes up with this idea of like um, 
why not sign up, you know, to join the revolution and become a gorilla? And uh, you know, he's, he's on a shrimp boat in the, in the Florida Keys and he suddenly decides he hears that a friend of his was murdered by the secret police in, um, in Havana. And he decides to go and reinvent himself over in Cuba. So he's got this sort of Gatsby-like uh, aura around him that's kind of um, a comical version, a sort of a low-life version of Gatsby. Yeah, the research was so bizarre. You know, these little tips, these little pieces of information that you can find about him. And then I started, um, you know, because he had been uh, put on trial, uh, you know, when, they, when he was arrested by the um, immigration authorities and they tried to deport him, and he became this sensational national case. You know, he's denounced by Robert Kennedy, you know, on the front page of the New York Times. He's, like, defended by the ACLU. And so I went back and was able to, with the Freedom of Information, and, um, and to get a hold of... Uh, you know, the, the court testimonies. And then I went to the ACLU archive, which is in Princeton, you know, so mm. a day trip to go there. And they've got this massive file on, on this, like, because he went through various, various cases. You know, it was in New York, in New York, it ended up in the Supreme Court. So he, they had this sort of cache of stuff. And from that, I was able to get the trial testimony in, um, in New York State, the appeals, and then embedded in all of that is this incredible amount of correspondence. And he, you know, he's in court, they're quizzing him all about his life. His, you know, his criminal record was there. His, um, the psychiatric assessment done when he was like 15 or 16 is there. All this amazing stuff. It's, um, and it's kind of fascinating. I mean, it was fascinating to me because a lot of it, you know, after I went to the ACLU files, you know, before the pandemic, which is to show how long it took for me to dig all this stuff up. But, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, there's a lot of other stuff I was able to just, like, make these sort of requests. Eventually, the, I, the Immigration Service, uh, which is now run, it had as, as an archive run by the Homeland Security, they sent me 2,700 pages of documents scanned. Wow. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm not, you know, this is going to take me a month to go through this. But it was like, there's that, and the, the trial transcripts were able, were able to be sent over. So there's an extraordinary amount of stuff. Um, the FBI, you know, there was some stuff that was embedded, you know, in, in the INS thing about the FBI, but there's, you know, even they were kind of helpful and back and forth about information. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it's just kind of uh, exciting. Uh, but I never would have had the time to do it if it wasn't for the pandemic, because it was kind of like, it was my little project, you know, it's sort of expense, you know, to do one of these, you know, requests takes, it's like all day. And it's like, you know, and, you know, figuring out how to do it online, I was like, mind-boggling and there's always you always screw it up and they're like oh no you can't do that you've got to do it this way you're like okay you know the bureaucracy is incredible and they 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 keep turning you down but then you sort of go actually what i meant was this you know what i meant was that and then you know if you've got the patience to do it it sort of works were those the the way you worded your foia requests is that what one of the mistakes you're referring to oh oh, no there was even worse (laughs) that's right i was one of them um (laughs) Because um, there's a, there's there's turns out to be two Herman Frederick Marxes. You have to prove either that um, you, know, you have to get the, have the the date of birth, but also you have to have uh, proof of death, you know, to, for privacy issues to, to get a hold of their file. And um, Herman Marx, my Herman Marx, disappeared. He just sort of like you know he from Milwaukee. He's got into his car one day and drove off uh, in like 1968, and no one actually knows what happened to him. So it's kind of like, oh, bummer. And, um, but he was born in August 1921. So it was kind of like, okay. Uh, but you know, but it, it, when I made the request, it wasn't quite 100 years. But there was another Herman Frederick Marx who died in Miami. And I've got a photo of, you know, online, you get a photo of his tombstone. And so I sent that to them. And it was like, they were like, okay, that's fine. And um, mm-hmm. you know, it's stuff like that. And I, but I was able to get his social security number. You know, all this sort of weird stuff. His draft card is online somewhere. It's kind of like, you know, so, so that's how I was able to show you, you know, this olive skin, this swarthy complexion. But it turns out he, he appears in, in so many weird um, recollections because he was kind of famous in his time. And early in, you know, after the revolution, um, you know, Newsday in 1959, when like the, the dictator flees, anyone who's seen Godfather Part Two knows this sort of amazing scene, but you know, the, you know, the, the dictator flies off and suddenly everyone panics and leaves Havana. And then eight days later, Fidel turns up with the guerrillas. But it, but it's this very sort of, it's, it, it's often referred to as the honeymoon of the revolution because everyone loved it in America. So all these journalists fly down, you know, Hemingway's there, you know, writers like George Plimpton, the editor of the Paris Review, go down. 
uh, Tennessee Williams turns up, and there's, there's this amazing meeting, which I start the story in in April, where they, uh, where they all gather at um, El Floridita uh, Bar, this famous bar and uh, Hemingway's favorite bar. And one night they're all hanging out with Hemingway, and then the next night uh, they're all meant to meet Hemingway, but he doesn't turn up, but instead... Uh, Herman Marx turns up and invites them to an execution. So everyone who was there writes a different account about this sort of night. And it's also, you know, you sort of piece it together. And they're all like invited off to see an execution. And it turns out that was like a tourist attraction. He he was like inviting people. You know, everyone wanted to go see an execution. If you went to Havana, you'd go to, you know, go to a nightclub, you go to the Tropicana, you go see an execution. That was kind of like yeah. the thing to do if you were going to go to the revolution. So it was kind of this fascinating thing. So they all write about it and they said they have descriptions of him. Uh, and it turns out in the press, all the journalists wanted to meet him. Once they discovered that an American was running, you know, the executions, it was like awesome. You know, the senators going down. They had the Hollywood actor Errol Flynn. You know, he was there. Uh, and it's, there's all these marvelous accounts. So you sort of piece it together. And like and Norman Lewis was an English journalist. He very, be- you know, very beautiful writer and um, great novelist as well. He went down like a buddy of Ian Fleming's. You know, uh, James Bond. You know, author. He goes down there. And hangs out and writes these beautiful sort of uh, accounts of meeting, you know, Herman Marx and going to the trials and, uh, you know, these, these wonderfully evocative sort of things. It's kind of like uh, there is actually a, a mine of information uh, if you've got like four months and nothing better to do <laughs> sitting around in your apartment in New York. Yeah. G- give us a sense of what his interactions were with the literary class in, I mean, in Cuba. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the great one is where like George Plimpton and Tennessee Williams and uh, Kenneth Tynan, who was the uh, you know the theater critic for the New Yorker, and his wife Elaine Dundee, who was this very successful novelist, they're all hanging around. So he just sort of turned up and introduced himself, and um, you know they they were sort of intrigued. But he's sort of a he's sort of a redneck. He's like you know it's kind of funny that you know like uh, Tennessee Williams and the you know has a, a streetcar named Desire, you know, he has a Stanley Kowalski. This is like, you know, Stanley Kowalski turning up, you know, because he's like this, this uh, Polish-American dude who's like this sort of, you know, he can't, you know, he's semi, you know, and he's semi-literate, but he's sort of kind of this extraordinary character. He has this aura of, um, you know, danger and excitement. He'd like, he'd been very successful as a, as a guerrilla and, in fact, uh, had helped Che run the, um, you know, the, the, the training up there because a lot of the people, the volunteers had never fired a gun or they'd turn up with some carbine, you know, from the 19th century. And so like uh, Herman was up there actually training them in various tactics and how to use guns and how, whatever. So he sort of was quite successful, even though he was a, you know, a bizarre figure. And so, so people were sort of fascinated by him, but there were also, there's a sort of a snobby sort of thing, you know, he's sort of a, he's kind of a low life. So they're often, you know, this sort of slightly snide, references to the way he talks, the way he dresses, you know, he's like dressing like a tourist. He's sort of, uh, you know, with this giant hulking gun and uh, often um, a little, a little bit um, mocking uh, and yet sort of fascinated, you know, this, you know, this sort of aura of danger. I mean, Tennessee Williams that even confesses that he'd sort of always fantasized about, uh, you know, being kidnapped by the, um, by the rebels and spending a raunchy uh, weekend up in, you know, Fidel with Fidel and Che up in the mountains. Um, so there was a sort of fascination. Um, so with Herman, it was like, uh, you know, they were, they were very wary of him and, uh, you know, he had sort of like also the, he, this, this aura of um, danger and this reputation for sadism as well. These rumors went round because he always had to do the, the coup de grace, you know, the, the, the final bullet in the head to make sure that, um, you know, someone was dead after they'd been shot. And there were rumors that he would empty his cartridge into the guy's head or you know, even into the face so they couldn't be recognized um, as a sort of a brutal, um, ruthless sort of... Um, sinister sort of uh, last act. So there were all these stories that surrounded him. And um, Errol Flynn was particularly fascinated by that. He was like, uh, I mean, he, Errol was like a, a great writer and a, um, you know, a uh, philosopher in many ways, weirdly. Uh, and so, so they even, he invited, he met Herman Marx at a party, you know, in Havana and then invites him around for, for dinner in his hotel suite where he's there with his, um, I mean, Errol's there with a 16 year old, uh, Beverly Adlan, they, um, uh, ingenue sort of actress. And uh, so they have dinner together and he's, they're discussing, you know, whether um, the philosophical uh, aspects of uh, execution and the death penalty and whether the, the condemned man should um, be able to choose the manner of death, things like that. So it's kind of fascinating and bizarre. 
Now, I understand that the beginning was something that you and Jonah really uh, not wrestled with in a way that you, you tried multiple beginnings before settling on this uh, more or less salon of the writers around Herman Marx. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you basically kind of workshopped a few endings, uh, beginnings and then settled on the one that leads off this piece. Yeah, well, the original piece that I did was it was quite long. It was like it was something of an epic, and uh, it was a sort of a ruminative start where um, I was sort of setting the the scene in um, in uh, Havana, really, uh, in a weird way, in spring, because you know the Floridita was uh, this extraordinary place where Hemingway sort of presided, and it became the Rick's Cafe from you know in Casablanca, where you know the arms dealers, the CIA agents. Uh, and, you know, the British Secret Service was there. Uh, you know, the musicians, actors, um, they were shooting our man in Havana, you know, in that month. Uh, and it was like everyone wanted to be in this one place. It was like, uh, you know, like Berlin in the 90s or um, you know, Shanghai in the 30s or Paris in the 20s. It was, everyone wanted to be in uh, Havana. And I just found this sort of fascinating. And everyone in particular wanted to be in this bar. And that's where Hemingway meets Tennessee Williams and this very famous sort of meeting and uh this famous encounter and it's kind of hilarious you know these two literary lions and everyone's there and um so i sort of started with that and then but it was the next night they all turned up you know so it was, it was a sort of double thing and it was like uh uh, so, so it sort of took a long time to get to the meeting where Herman Marx turns up because the next night they all turn up thinking that Hemingway's going to be there, and instead, uh, this other guy from the Midwest turns up. You know, this uh, this sort of um, bizarre figure who weirdly was born like seventy miles away from where Hemingway was born, up you know, in the on the the, the lakes up there. Very strange sort of coincidences. And then I thought, oh, that's taking too long to get to this meeting. And so then, then I thought, well, another one was like, you know, what about where Errol Flynn meets uh, Herman Marx? Because when he invites him around to dinner and has this amazing sort of conversation, it's quite bizarre. You know, have this sort of Hollywood, uh, you know, matinee idol. Um, he's not as well remembered now, but he was like uh, one of the gods uh, of, of Hollywood and who played Robin Hood. He played pirates, this very heroic sort of figure who had actually been in uh, Cuba for, for many months and, and, and reported with Fidel on the front lines and, you know, in the east of the island and uh, was there the, the day. He's, he was the only reporter who was there when um, Batista, the dictator, fled. So he, and he wrote for, uh, you know, this, this thing, the New York Journal American, another publication that no longer exists. But, um, so there was that extraordinary thing and that sort of this sort of weird conversation that they were having in a you know that was a possibility. God, I think we tried a couple of others as well. But but Jonah very correctly said, well, why don't we just go with meeting uh that meeting where Herman Marx turns up and then all these guys are there and like this that you know, this invitation to go to uh the execution and we get cut to the to the to the chase we're meeting this extraordinary character the, the the very idea that there's an american who's running the execution is the most controversial element you know to this day the you know the the executions the number of executions is still argued and um debated and you know it's still a very controversial thing so why don't we just start you know like get straight into it hit its stride and i and i think it was the right decision it was clearly the right decision it was like uh, let's get right into it and suddenly the the narrative just it kicks off from there yeah, and you alluded to it earlier in that how Marx, after he he flees Cuba, he's arrested in the States, and he had his citizenship stripped because he fought in a foreign army. But this turns out to be a giant civil rights case because anyone who might have not been born in the States, who had fought in an army and came over and was naturalized, might be subject to deportation and everything. So suddenly... Marx, as much of a monster as he is, becomes this uh, this token of actually we need to protect this guy for the for the good of the country. Yeah, he's he's yeah American history's least lovable uh, civil rights martyr. He's, yeah. uh, he's uh, you know in the irony you know I mean the ACLU today was basically born to defend um, after the the Red Scare in the First World War. It was like they were, where the the U.S. government. Uh, would use stripping of citizenship as a, as a weapon, as a political weapon. So um, in the First World War, 
uh, you know, against communists, anarchists, uh, anyone you know, with radical leanings, uh, they would sort of be targeted. And it was very easy to target um, immigrants, you know, because, you know, they just say they came into the country illegally. Uh, in the case of Emma Goldman, the most famous, you know, she was an American citizen. But all they had to do was go, oh, we actually um, gave you the citizenship by accident. You know, it's like it was a mistake. And so deport her back to Russia. Uh, so it was, it was used in the, in the First World War at various times, and it became more and more, you know, bizarre uh, laws. There was one, you know, that uh, if, you know, if you marry, if a woman marries, uh, uh, and it was women, you know, if you marry a, a non, you know, a non-American and go live overseas for three years, you lose your citizenship. You know, all these weird rules, you know, they, but, but there were ones that could, be, could really be used to target people. And um, one of them originated in 1940, but was sort of revived in particular during the um, – McCarthy years, and that was which is the end of the second Red Scare. So they're always targeting, uh, you know, unpopular, you know, you know, radicals. Was uh, if you'd served in the foreign army, which is totally bizarre, given that uh, in the First World War, uh, so many Americans served on the in the British and French side before entering the, the war, and the Second World War, the Spanish Civil War, uh, all these different, uh, you know, occasions. And and they, you know, they talk about the Marquis de Lafayette in, uh, you know, the American War of Independence. There's all sorts of extraordinary examples. So, but but because of Cuba and obviously the, the, this sort of romantic view of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, after you know the early days of Castro winning, you know to the point where Castro came to um, uh, the United States in 1959, you know in April and did this triumphant tour where he's like fated all over New York and Washington. He's carried on his shoulders uh, around and he's like he's compared to George Washington as this whole extraordinary sort of thing, this incredible popularity. And that, but that sours in 1959, and then by 1960-61, he's demonized. And so anything to do with Cuba is suddenly, like, uh, toxic. Hmm. So these Americans who were sort of serving in the, in the, in the military after, um, uh, after the revolution, they're targeted one by one, and they're stripped of their citizenship. And so the ACLU realizes that this is, like a, this is a precedent that could really be uh, used, you know, you know against... You know, in in various ways against people, and um, the idea is that um, citizenship is a right. It's not um, something that the government can grant and take away. It's something that you're born in the United States, you know, or you become a citizen. You that that's that's your right. You can't, you know, it just can't be at the whim of the government under various laws. It's part of the Fourteenth um, uh, Amendment. So uh, so that was what the argument was. It was, and it seems a very particular and bizarre case and it sort of was um in some ways but the ACDO realized that it was um it could really be abused and they sort of pounced on it and um you know they they were able to defend Marx in various 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 cases this guy this crusading uh, lawyer uh, Gordon Murray did it joined up you know and uh, uh working pro bono and um uh really like the this extraordinary character and fights you know all the way to the supreme court they were and eventually it didn't really help Herman Marx, but like you know, a, a year or two later, it was you know the, it, the Supreme Court did overturn all these these cases and made it unconstitutional to try and strip away citizenship, and it's, it was such a complete victory. But today, you know, telling people that you know you could lose your citizenship, you know, if you married the wrong person or if you you know did you know any number of like weird things, and people wouldn't you know Americans don't really believe it. You know, it's like that the idea that citizenship rights were ever really at risk. Is sort of, sort of fantastical, and yet it was in the '60s, and um, you know, so so kind of an extraordinary moment. How did you go about winnowing a lot of the legal stuff down? Because I imagine it was uh, a wealth of information, and yet you know, you don't want to weigh the narrative down too much with courtroom stuff. Yeah, it's it's kind of mind-boggling to. Um, you know, to, to, when you're first reading it, you're like, going, "What?" It's like, okay, <laughs> and it's and it went through, you know, so many different appeals, and you know, and there were two elements to Marx's case as well, which was very confusing. First, and the idea that he was stripped of his citizenship in Cuba, so he entered the United States illegally, and then when he's in the United States, they're deporting him because of moral turpitude, because he had a carnal, you know, his, his criminal record, as including a, you know, a, a carnal knowledge case, you know, when he, in 1951. So there's all this, there's two sort of weird things going on. There's the constitutional case, and then there's this sort of like um, immigration case, and uh, so. Luckily, there was a book written about it um, that's actually quite good by uh, uh, you know, the, um, the sovereign citizen, 
that I found, and it's this whole book on this very issue, uh, written by a Yale visiting professor, and it's, it's actually very clear and very lucid. And so reading that, it sums up everything in such a sort of a concise sort of way. It's like, okay, I get this. And uh, it, it's true that, like, if I tried to put it all in, it would have been yeah, you know, of interest only to legal scholars, you know, you know, you know. So, it was, so trying to clarify that sort of thing. I mean, that's you know, hopefully, we did it. And then, of course, the fact checkers were like, you know, we were back and forth about how do you say this and like, you know, get the legal terminology right, but still in a sort of a that the layman can sort of figure out. So, um, I hope it worked. Uh, I think it sort of all makes sense, but um, but it's definitely uh, it was definitely a challenge. Yeah, and the the structure is you know five parts with a short epilogue. So when you were setting down to write this this piece, you know, uh, what was the the machinations of coming up with the right structure to tell the story? You know, it had a very cinematic sort of uh, element to it. It seemed to me, yeah. and uh, you know, and just starting at this moment where like. Uh, uh, yeah, with Herman Marx doing it, doing, you know, like running the executions and him. And I liked the idea of it, it coincided with like the honeymoon of the revolution where everyone loves the revolution. It's very exciting. And Herman Marx is at his, sort of, it's his golden moment where he's sort of, uh, he's respected, you know, he's like, you know, everyone loves him in Havana because he's doing this, you know, he's doing the, it, it seems like dirty work, but he's, he's executing these guys. It's like, they're like Nazis, these guys, you know, it's like, you know, they're really sinister figures. And so there's no sympathy. And in fact, for the years, long years of the dictatorship, you know, there's, you know, these the secret police have been running around, you know, kidnapping people, torturing them, bodies being strung up in the, in the streets. And like humans have been living for this like seven years. So, you know, he's doing, and, the, and they do have these sort of trials, you know, and lawyers can, you know, there were revolutionary tribunals, but still there was evidence back and forth. Um, and he's the one who's doing it. So he's, you know, he's sort of the, sort of a beloved figure in Havana. He goes to the, the, the restaurants, he gets the best tables, everyone knows him. You know, Captain Herman, he's like, yeah. And he starts dating this, you know, Manhattan model who's a photojournalist there and, you know, Jean Sicon and uh, Jean Sicon. And she's sort of like, so he's got this sort of like moment in the sun. So it's like starting with that and then sort of like pulling back to his sort of bizarre earlier life. And then suddenly like the narrative is like, oh, wow. Then the narrative has its own sort of logic but it was very it is very cinematic it's like you know consciously or unconsciously you know you've got this amazing scene and then stepping back and then the narrative going along and then you know this other turning point where like the you know the, the revolution goes awry and Amer- you know the, this conflict you know between the united states and cuba suddenly becomes more and more extreme and and herman marx as well as you know john sicon and these other uh you know americans were there suddenly caught in this geopolitical machine where it's like becoming more and more extreme and suddenly their lives their dream lives in havana where they're like you know having this great time in the revolution uh suddenly it's going very very wrong and they're like you know they're about you know they're in danger of being like you know arrested and tried as spies and this whole thing and so they come to the conclusion that get out of here as soon as we can and um but how do you get out of an island where the government you know it would see herman marx as a deserter you know, and John Jean Sicon had been doing this sort of research on communism, all this sort of weird stuff. So they end up hijacking a, a, a boat, you know, and then running out of petrol halfway to Mexico. It's kind of like, you know, it was this amazing adventure story. And then the next stage, you know, where there's the midnight door knock in, in, new, in a walk-up apartment in, in Manhattan and the, the INS tracks him down and uh, arrests him and he becomes this sort of national figure. You know, it's like he couldn't make it up. So it was kind of like, uh, so it was like yeah. that, that was the narrative, you know, and it was like, uh, and, and the only thing that I wish that I was try- could have found out is, you know, is like, what happened to the guy? Because he literally, um, you know, and, and, and in, you know, he's like there, you know, and, and everything's sort of screwed up for him. He, you know, and he manages to, you know, alienate everyone from sympathy. You know, he's like, he gets arrested, he falls out of a tree, you know, spying on some woman, you know, in the Upper East Side and breaks his leg, goes home to Milwaukee, lives with his mum. You know, um, and then gets accused of child molestation. It's like, oh my god! You know, it's like Herman. You know, it's like you know, he, it wasn't very Hollywood friendly. I got to say, it was like, oh god! You know, the charges may have been trumped up. We don't know. 
um, there's a whole romantic, weird romantic thing that was going on with the, the woman who accused him. It was like, who knows? But then he, uh, it, it's just not, not ideal. And then he's sort of like, he's about to be charged, so he just gets in his car and drives off. And no one knows what happens. He, um, his mother, when she's dying some years later, you know, puts out a plea, you know, in the newspapers to get, you know, come back, Herman, you know, the Salvation Army's looking for him and Skid Row in Chicago, see if he's like, he's on Alco there. The FBI has reports that, you know, he might, you know, that he, there's one report that he was, went back to Cuba and was shot. That, that's sort of fanciful because you know, he would never have gone back to Cuba. It would have been insane. You know, it was like, uh, it would have been suicide. He, there was a report that he was in Canada that turns out to be, uh, they got the wrong person. Uh, the mm. family thought that he'd fled to Mexico, which is by far the most logical thing, you know, because in those days, I mean, he, he crossed over from Mexico by using his, you know, Wisconsin driver's license that was out of date. And, the, you know, the, the Border Patrol guy didn't even ask him for it. He just said he had a driver's license in his pocket. So in those days, going back and forth to Mexico and disappearing in Mexico is um, – you know, it was very, very easy. I mean, you could have done it within the United States as well. You know, in the in the sixties, you know, it's 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 hard to imagine how or to remember, you know, to realize how easy it was to disappear as as compared to now. So he in Mexico, he would have, could have just gone back and reinvented himself, you know, as some American dude and just sort of like, um, you know, dissolved into 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 the landscape there and. Um, yeah, but I w- so I, I was trying to get the CIA files. That was the thing. That was the thing that hmm. kind of really bummed me out. And the CIA um, just wouldn't do it. And then uh, you know, I, made, I tried everything. You know, like you know, public interest, whatever. And there's there's a, there's a clause that um, there's this national security clause that, uh, in fact, I, I believe um, the Biden administration won't release. You know, reaffirmed last week that they won't release some some JFK assassination. Uh, documents on this sort of national security clause, uh, and it's you know I have friend a friend who actually works in the freedom of information sort of field, and uh, he's like, no, you're never going to get it. It's never going to happen. They just um, anything to do with Cuba during the revolution. They're just like you know, there's no way of forcing the CIA to reveal this file, which is unfortunate because it means that conspiracy theorists, you know, hmm. it was, because Herman Marx did in fact contact the CIA when he got back to, to the United States through, to say like, I, you know, I know have all this information. I was, you know, personal contact with Che Guevara and Fidel and, you know, I know who everyone is and where they live, you know, and it was never followed up apparently. But, you know, uh, conspiracy theorists would assume you know, like if, if the CIA is not revealing the files, there's a reason for that, you know, that maybe he signed up with the, with the CIA and, you know, was got a, you know, witness protection thing and, you know, uh, was just like working as an agent for the CIA. You know, hmm. we'll never know. Uh, it seems kind of unlikely given he was such a loose cannon, but um, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. A low life Gatsby probably wouldn't be able to... Uh, be an unassuming figure throughout the throughout the yeah. rest of his life. <laughs> I mean, the CIA dealt with some pretty strange people. You know, it's like if you look at who they were dealing, with, especially with Cuba. But I did actually when uh, I was doing a story on the Bay of Pigs invasion for the uh, 60th anniversary for Smithsonian. So I went down to Miami and I met you know the the, the surviving you know Bay of Pigs veterans who like they have two museums down there. Like they're all in their 80s and 90s, but they're like you know lucid and you know like they, they all get together for these anniversaries. Um, in fact, I went to an open casket, you know, funeral for one of the guys, and they're all there hanging out. And then and I asked them all, and they're like, you know, um, and in fact, um, uh, Felix Rodriguez, who's the who was the guy who's the CIA's major point man, uh, is still alive, and he was the guy who helped track down Che Guevara in Bolivia in in, in '67. And, uh, you know, flew back with Che Guevara's body to La Paz, you know, um, all this, you know, so he's the guy. He, he said, no, he never had any contact with him in the United States. And, um, and, he, and he said that if we had, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, just implied that, you know, that it, it would not have ended well for Herman because, uh, mm. um, you know, he was working for Castro, you know, he was like doing the executions and the whole thing. So, Unfortunately for, for Marx, he was like hated by everybody. You know, it was like, yeah. uh, you know, the, he fled the, you know, the, the, the Batista people hated him because, you know, he was executing their members. Uh, he fled the Castro revolution. So all the, you know, he was considered a turncoat. You know, the FBI wanted him, you know, they hated him. The, um, the immigration people wanted to arrest him. So it was like everyone hated him. And, you know, uh, 
I thought there was kind of like an existential level to it, if you can have any sympathy for him. Because he was the, you know, the ultimate outsider when he was growing up. You know, uh, you know, he, you know, it's sort of a, you know, reforms, you know, he was just in and out of, uh, you know, one problem after the next from, uh, as a teenager and kept, you know, couldn't hold down a job and, you know, like a real sort of, uh, you know, he was a problem. You know, he's like, uh, you know, drifting around the United States, was unable to, um, you know, the, this amazing moment of prosperity in the States, you know, and on the surface it's this sort of, you know, very extraordinary um, middle-class lifestyle that's sort of building all over the United States. But there's also this underclass, you know, of like you just can't can't make it in the um, you know in this in this this sudden burst of wealth that's happening, and so um, you know there's a sort of this poignancy I thought that he goes over to Cuba and sort of is, he joins the revolution, he reinvents himself. He, no one knows who he is, you know. It's like and he's he's able to use his weird skills uh, in the Sierra Maestra and sort of like. Uh, you know, he's got to do this job. It's not, no one really wants to run execution squads, but he, he'll do it. And hmm. um, you know, he so he so he sort of becomes this respected figure. And then, like you know, it's, within a couple of years, he's like he's again he's beyond the ultimate outsider. It's like everyone wants to get rid of him. You know, the U.S. government's against him. The Cubans are against him. No country. He becomes a stateless figure because you know, he loses his citizenship, and yet no country wants to take him. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, he, you know, the Mexicans refuse to have him. The Cubans refuse to have him. You know, everyone, everyone hates him. So he's wandering around the United States. He can't get a job. He, you know, he, his Teamster union uh, you know, card is revoked because you know, the INS contacts the Teamsters union and tells them about his criminal past. So he loses his job there. And so he ends up working in his, you know, his cousin's uh, you know, um, hairstyling salon in Milwaukee. It's like, you know, it's just... Uh, He's he's even even worse position than he was when he was a when he was growing up. So, if there's any sympathy to be had for this guy, that's sort of it, I think. Well, it's an incredible story, Tony, and I, I got to commend you on on the the pacing and the and everything about it because it was a real gripping read. So, uh, you know, th- thanks for thanks for the work you did on it, and of course, thanks for the time to hop on the podcast to talk to talk oh, all about yeah. it. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I can talk for hours about about all this. It's uh. I, I don't know. With Cuba, you get sort of facet, you get sort of obsessed, and um, you know, you sort of lose perspective. But I was like, I just thought this was such a, a great untold story, and um, kudos to the eight of us. To you know, they they really let let me run with it. They saw the the, the potential. All right. Thanks to Jonah and Tony for the time, but more importantly. Thank you for listening and hanging around for the after party. See, see, after the interview, it's not just credits. See, a lot of times people will front load their podcast with a whole lot of BS. Granted, I have a little bit of BS up there, but I tend to get in the interview pretty quick. Uh, but I save a lot of that BS for the post credits. I don't think anyone listens to it, but it's there if you want. In any case, this is the behind the velvet rope portion of the podcast price of admittance is your time if you care if you're loading the dishwasher walking the dog or ignoring your kids i'm here for you grab a beverage i'm sipping on anti-libations these days part of a sober october possibly longer thing because i drink way too much and i'm out of shape and look like shrek without the self-assuredness and i figure if i can focus on just one freaking thing for six months say my health and wellness and mobility and strength then maybe I can set a new baseline from which to work and play from, you know? I got this kind of thing going on with my left knee. I don't know if it's a mobility thing or something more structurally damaged. I keep wrenching my back during back and front squats. Again, don't know if that's just a muscle pull or something more structurally damaged. Going to see a doctor about this, finally. And get this, the other day, my dog got stung by a bee and uh, while we were hiking freaked out who wouldn't i mean getting stung by bees sucks and we didn't know how he would react we just knew that it was really bugging him and so that was effectively the end of the hike but we were three miles from our car i was forced to run with a pack to the car and it did not go well the the whole time i got to thinking that fitness shouldn't be about vanity though instagram and 
men's health and women's health magazines and their airbrushed roided up cover models would have us think otherwise. You know, fitness is about being useful. Like, what if you have to carry someone several miles? What if your dog got bit by a snake or an, and not a bee and you had to carry all 75 pounds of Hank three miles to a car? You know, what if your cute neighbor needs you to move that heavy thing? What if you can unload all the groceries in one trip for your partner? And shouldn't you be able to hold your arm out straight while your kids do pull-ups on them without fear of your rotator cuff exploding? So as I ran as fast as I could over hills and stuff and hiking boots and a pack and hiking pants, a sweatshirt, uh, taking 40 fucking minutes to run three miles, I got to thinking that I need to, I need to make some changes. And that probably means I, I'm not drinking so goddamn much Oregon delicious frothy hoppy high ABV IPA. And oh my God. Do I have a problem or am I just bored? So there you are. I'm happy you stuck around. Are you happy you stuck around? I don't know. Magazine.atavis.com. Dig it. Stay wild, CNFers. And remember, if you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.